0: Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. If you're listening to this on YouTube, make sure to click on the link on the screen or below in the description, because you're definitely going to want to hear the full audio of our interview with Dan Dickow. And if you don't know who he was, or he is, uh, Dan played at Gonzaga, was an All-American, played in the NBA for six years, and is currently doing color commentary on Gonzaga games and other Pac-12 games. Uh, as well, Dan, tell us you also have a radio show that you're doing as well, right? Yes, pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. What? Tell me, what's the radio show like? How long are you on the air for? And what are you guys focusing on?
2: Uh, it's the uh, the Dick Allen Slim Show in Spokane on 700 ESPN, and uh, it's a uh, it's a little bit of everything. Uh, obviously, my background and my passion is basketball right now. Um, we get to touch on a little bit of Gonzaga hoop, a little bit of college basketball. NBA is doesn't have a huge following in Spokane. It's more, more Gonzaga related. But really right now our focus is on uh, college football in the area and the
0: NFL because the Seahawks uh, are such a big part of the Pacific Northwest. For sure, for sure. And I, I imagine growing up there, uh, you grew up in the Portland area, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So then, are you when you grew up in Portland, are you a Seattle Seahawks fan by default? You know, I
2: really wasn't. Um, oddly enough, I grew up a Green Bay Packer fan.
0: I used to really like
2: Brett Favre. Um, I followed the Seahawks a little bit, Kurt Warner, Steve Largent, but um, I wasn't too dialed into the Seahawks bandwagon until a couple of years ago. I had a chance to go to the NFC Championship game at CenturyLink when they played the 49ers a couple of years ago, and that was – that was kind of my turning moment is, uh, okay, I am a Seahawks fan now. So, um, you know, this past Sunday's game was a little, little interesting because the Packers have been my, one of my favorite teams for a long, long time. But then now my allegiance completely lies with the Seahawks, uh, regardless of who they play. But, um, Yeah, you're you're pretty much a Seahawks fan in this neck of the
0: woods. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm gonna have to call an audible here because my audience would probably be mortified knowing I spend any time talking about football on our podcast, (laughs) not because we're a basketball channel, but because I I I'm so opposed to football at this point with uh, what we're discovering about uh, brain damage and in all sorts, you know, the fact that people die on that field. So, but let's let's move on to basketball because you've had quite a fascinating journey. Uh, through your career, starting with uh, all the way through college. And I went through your bio, and um, I'm always curious when I talk to NBA guys or guys who played in college, who they played for, who their coaches were, and what their reactions were to those. So I wrote out a list. I'm going to go through it quickly, and maybe we can break down a few, you know, a few of your insights into each coach. But here it goes. Are you ready? You started out in Washington with Bob Bender. Then you went to Gonzaga with Mark Few. In the NBA, it was Juan Kruger and Terry Stotts and the Hawks. Maurice Cheeks with the Blazers, Don Nelson and Avery Johnson with the Mavericks. Although I don't think you were there for Avery Johnson when he took over. Uh, although I guess he was the assistant. Byron Scott, New Orleans Hornets, uh, Doc Rivers with the Celtics, Nate McMillan with the Blazers and Mike Dunleavy with the LA Clippers. So it's a lot of coaches, a lot of great coaches. Um, you know, let's go in order again. Maybe you can offer to some of your, what you felt like and what you thought were was some interesting, you know, tidbits on each coach. So, Talk about yeah. Bob Bender. You weren't in Washington that long, I don't think, but Bob Bender, what were your impressions of him as a coach?
2: You know, Coach B was a, a very good recruiter.
0: He uh, he kind
2: of mapped out what, what he envisioned was a kind of a plan for me and how I'd fit into the program. You know, and unfortunately a lot of times there's uh, something lost in translation for high school kids once they get uh, on campus, and it mm-hmm. just wasn't a good fit for me. You know, he was very intense. Um, He was more of a a motion offense type of guy, but we didn't necessarily have great personnel um, to run it effectively for long periods of time that I felt. You know, we did have some good pieces. Donald Watts, um, Deion Luton were really good wings that we had. Todd McCulloch obviously was a big that we had at UW, and he went on to the NBA for quite a number of years. But, you know, we we just didn't have a very good offense in my opinion. Um, And a lot of that, unfortunately, Players can say that because they didn't have a role maybe that they wanted. And that might be part of the reason that I do say that because then I move on to Gonzaga where Coach Few places such an emphasis on skill development, places such an emphasis on making yourself and your teammates better, and then he puts guys in a position where they can each succeed on the court. Um, It was a complete night and day scenario for me. You know, I look at one of the things that Coach Few – for me, he was extremely demanding as far as, hey, these are the expectations that we have of you. You're replacing, you know, a really good high-level point guard in Matt Santangelo who got us to the Elite Eight, got us to the Sweet 16. These are the non-negotiables. This is what you got to do. Um, you're a different player, um, but if, if, if we're going to be as good as we think we can be, you've got to be really good at, at these things. And, you know, again, to go back to the fact that we're different players, one thing that always stuck in my mind with Coach Few was he judges his point guards on win-loss percentage. He doesn't care about points per game, assists per game, turnovers per game, even to a certain extent because he wants you playing aggressive and he wants you getting, um, you know, the defense on their heels and kind of making the most of things. Um, but that's the one thing I really kind of remember from, from Coach Few is like, okay, I judge my point guard on win-loss percentage. It's your job to figure out what needs to be done within the framework of all the things that I give yourself and the team to do. So,
0: you know, I think that's the biggest thing with Coach Pugh. You know, if you want to move on now to the NBA.
2: Well, well,
0: well, if we can just take one step back, I would like to talk a little bit about what you said about the motion offense and how it it might not have been an offense that worked for you as well. I'm curious because I'm a triangle offense coach, and I've Mm -hmm. observed it's been part of teams that have run motion and it's been a little bit troubling for me because almost i all, all, i swear to god 99.9% of the coaches i've seen that run motion are screamers. Hey, and i don't know if that's connected or not. Uh was now Bob Bender he said was a was intense. Was he a yeller? Yeah, he
2: he had some times where he could be a screamer. You know, and i guess to go back, maybe it wasn't fair to say that wasn't a great offense for me. Maybe it wasn't a great offense for me at the time because i wasn't taught at that moment in my career how to use screens as well as I did once I got to Gonzaga. I wasn't uh, on a team that valued, you know, you give yourself up for a teammate by setting a good screen and it'll come back and help you out down the road. Um, so that's why I think,
0: you know, I, 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 I mentioned it in those terms. OK, because my other thought was, you know, when I, I had come into a couple of different situations where the motion offense is already installed and, you know, it looks good. There's all sorts of movement and guys are cutting and they're calling out screens and they're running. But what I always noticed was um, so much of that is wasted motion because, you know, a lot of that action won't even be considered by the ball handler to make a pass because it's happening way on the weak side or out of context. And so that was why I gravitated to the triangle because everything sort of gravitated toward allowing the ball handler to pass to any, four of, any one of his four teammates at any time and it was structured. Whereas for me, motion was like, oh, okay, that's nice. But, you know, half, I don't know, 40% of this is just, they don't, they'll never receive that pass on that cut. And uh, did you get that feeling or is that not what you, what you experienced? You know, I think so much of it
2: is um, how you teach. Uh, each part of motion. Um, You know, and I think that's a big difference in in a lot of uh, motion between college teams as well as NBA teams. I mean, the NBA clock is 24 seconds. Thankfully, they're finally getting some traction on moving the college clock to being shorter because if you watch a lot of college games, there's so much wasted motion, it's ridiculous. It's almost like reverse, reverse, reverse. Defense is finally going to break down. And a lot of times you score... Because of defensive breakdowns, which is fine rather than simply running good offense um you mm-hmm. know so I, I definitely think that um you know there's 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 an art to having a motion offense, there's an art teaching motion offense um and it's difficult to get guys to buy in constantly I and mean, then you look at Greg Popovich, I don't think you can call them having a true motion offense, but they have a ton of elements. Where guys move off the ball, they cut, they screen, they space, um, but because they get it and they have a coach who who makes them understand the importance of it and, and why they're doing what they do.
0: Well, let's talk about Coach Few and how that contrasted to the offense that you ran there. Now, I don't think that Coach Few would be considered a screamer, right?
2: Not really. Um, he's got his moments where you know he'll he'll uh, <laughs> you know really kind of get the team fired up, but you know the thing I've always felt is great coaches do their coaching in practice and the games and how the team plays is kind of the byproduct of all the teaching that's gone in because you prepare your team during the during the week in practice. And the games is a kind of an opportunity for if you've done a really good job of preparing your players, they're just going to go out and do what you've been working on throughout the week. So, you know, I, I think, you know, Coach dew has a very good feel for, getting his guys prepared. And, you know, there are certain times that any coach is going to have to uh, raise their intensity level. There's going to be certain times where coaches have to uh, kind of take a step back and and sense the pulse of your team, you know, and maybe give them a day off. I think Coach Hugh is really good at that at the college level.
0: Now, can you remember, like, you know, the offense, as I recall back then, um, because we're big Horns fanatics over here, and as I recall, it was a 1-4 flat, and you had a lot of different – almost like a triangle offense feel to sort of the high post, you know, UCLA cutting and then pin downs in the corners. Was that what you were running when you were there? You know, we ran a lot of different stuff. Um, I
2: remember, um, that was still at a point in time where Gonzaga, we ran quite a bit of flex. We did run quite a bit of the one four stuff that you're talking about. Um, you know, I would agree with you. We probably ran more one four low where screeners came up as opposed Mm -hmm. to one four UCLA type sets. Um, but really, the the crux of all those types of offenses is read, react, set up your, your defender, change speeds, change directions. Um, if you do that in any offense, as long as you've got good spacing, you're going to get opportunities to score. And I think that's one thing that Coach Q really kind of uh, was very good at is teaching guys how to read, react, how to change speed, how to change directions, how to value a screen, how to value setting a screen. Um, those things I think he's really good at.
0: How did, now let me ask you: Do you remember, like, how? Because uh, that's, that's a real, you know, tough concept to be able to teach. Or how to read, uh, you know, a screen. Is he breaking it down into like, you know, two line drills and three line drills with no defense and really just rep- repetition? Is or what? What did he do? A
2: little, little bit of everything. I mean, uh, most of our shooting drills in practice were game situations, game speeds, game scenarios like coming off of wide bend-downs or light coming off floppies or light coming off flex screen action. So you're always, you know, thinking and preparing for a game-type shot. Um, So you do a lot of that. And then there would be a lot of live two-on-two, three-on-three type drilling where, okay, you know what, we got to get better at at getting this flex guy open coming off the down screen. Um, You know what, we're going to work on this. We're going to play two-on-two. There's no fouls on the defense offense you got to get yourself open you got to get yourself set up you got to come off the screen you got to be prepared to do something with the ball when you catch it whether it's shot whether it's quickly advancing with a pass or whether that's back off the bounce
0: i love that you know i I, we stress over here you know attack on the catch and it's also a fine line between when somebody hears that they think oh i'm just going to shoot it every time i catch it and it's that fine line between being aggressive, but you want to attack off the catch to create either an opportunity for your teammate. Usually, that's the first thing we try and stress, or then you can create for yourself. Uh, how did Coach Few balance uh, that that notion? Um,
2: you know, I, I think for me, one thing that I was always um, cognizant of, and and I had some, I had a really good high school coach as well. Um, we didn't necessarily run a ton of different sets, but we 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 drilled a lot of stuff in high school. I was always taught to, as the point guard, you know what? I bring the ball up the floor thinking like a point guard. The second I gave the ball up, I'm Mm -hmm. not a point guard anymore. I'm just a – I'm a shooter. I'm a scorer. I'm a basketball player. If I come off the screen and I'm open, why not shoot it? I'm probably the best shooter on the floor at that particular time. I'm doing my team a disservice to not put it up. So I always had the, the idea of you bring it down as a one. As soon as you give it up, you think like a two.
0: Oh, you know, I never really heard that. That's fantastic. you're right because you watch the Spurs do that, right? Tony Parker as soon as that it comes around any kind of action, yeah, he is a scoring guard um and and that's probably the reason why his assists are are sort of quote-unquote lower than typical point guards, but I think he that's how he helps his team the most. Absolutely. I I agree with that 100%. Who who let this is, you know, to put a picture in our listeners' heads right now. You know, who would you say in today's game that you play the most like or plays most like you? Ooh, that's a a tough one. You know, um, some of the listeners
2: are probably going to think I'm crazy to say this, but, you know, Steph Curry. Um, Obviously, (laughs) he's MVP in the league. But, you know, just the fact that, you know, when I was at my best in college and, you know, the the year I had in New Orleans under uh, Byron Scott, when I was at my best in the NBA – is I had the freedom to probe off the dribble. Um, you know, I had the freedom to come off a pick and roll and reject it and, and shoot a pull-up three. Um, now, obviously, Steph Curry is on a whole nother level, and I get it. I'm not comparing myself to him. But, you know, just the way that I think uh, saw the game, wanted the game to be played, how you flowed into different things. Because I think he's another great example of, you know, you come down as a one, once you get rid of it, you're a two. Because, I mean, he's top three shooter in the league hands down right now. Why wouldn't you want him coming off pin downs or floppy actions or different things where he's thinking as a shooter, not just as a point guard?
0: Oh, you know, up until very recently, I'd argue that he just should be the shooting guard the whole time. But, you know, in reality, you're right, there isn't that much difference. You're talking about a guy who might, you know, at least back in the day, was bring the ball past half court and make a pass to the wing, right? That's all your point guard sort of did to initiate. Now, though, what's interesting to me, I'm watching a lot of the Spurs stuff as we're going through some breakdowns, and uh, so much of the um, of the initiation of offense is dribble to the wing, which uh, mm-hmm. did, was that happening a lot with you when, when you were playing in college? Yeah, uh, we had a, a, a few
2: things where it was dribble handoff type sets at Gonzaga. You know, I was I was also lucky that I played with another really good backcourt mate, uh, Blake Stepp, who was a bigger guard than I was uh, at six four, um, but he was a guy who could handle it. He could play the point himself. When I left, he played point at Gonzaga the last two years. And so we really, you know, we had the ability to play off of each other. I think that's something that um, in the college game in particular, if you have two ball handlers that can make plays and make make decisions on the fly and on the move, you're at a huge advantage. If you have three ball handlers that can do it, I mean, you're almost, as long as they have the athletic ability
0: and, and they can guard well enough, you know, you're really at an advantage against the, the opponent. Well, let's talk about athletic ability for a second, now you bring it up. I mean, you didn't have a seven-foot wingspan, and I don't remember ever seeing you, like, you know, do a double pump, reverse jam, or something like that. So it seemed like you you had to overcome, you know, or at the very least, you were probably being guarded and playing against guys who were quicker and stronger and faster than you on a regular basis. Would that be fair to say? No, that'd be
2: absolutely fair. I mean, you know, even go you go back to high school, I was – Uh, There was only one kid on my high school team that was smaller than me. Uh, My AAU team, I was always the smallest guy um, in the NBA. And in college, I was pretty much the smallest guy as well. Um, Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not the toughest. It doesn't necessarily mean you're not the most uh, gritty uh, because I definitely think those were things that compelled me to to have success and and make it to the next level time after time. Um, But I will say, you know, I was more athletic, I think, than people thought. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was quicker than people thought, but the, but I was not as athletic as, you know, Russell Westbrook or one of these other point guards um, that you look at and say, wow, but the fact is that I could maximize my athletic abilities because I was so skilled with the ball, but then I could also fully utilize uh, my skills with the ball because I was a good enough athlete and I had a good enough idea of body control and and those types of things.
0: Let me ask you this before we get on to the NBA coaching uh, carousel. um, You know, becoming a good ball handler, you know, did you improve a lot after you got to college or were you already so proficient through high school that you didn't, you know, the the skill level didn't need to improve, you just kind of kept it, you know, sharp?
2: Well, I I grew up, um, Pete Maravich was my favorite player of all time. So when I was young, I got the Pistol Pete Homework Basketball Series. And I wore those tapes out, and I got kind of the point where, hey, I had, you know, a routine of 15, 20 drills that, you know, I pretty much did every single day. Um, And it and it was something that I viewed from a young age that, hey, I need to be the best ball handler on the floor. I need to be the best shooter on the floor. I need to put the time in to, to become very good at these different things if I'm going to have success in this game. And I loved it. I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was always a challenge to try to, to, you know, speed up in certain drills or, or not make mistakes going through drills. And the more you have the ball in your hands, working on those homework basketball type drills, you know, the easier it becomes once you transition into crossover work dribble, into between the legs, into big combo dribbles. So it becomes like, I don't have to think about how the ball should feel. I just, with the ball where I want it to go. And then once you get a little bit older and you understand spacing on the floor and how to, you know, shift the defense with an inside out dribble to get where you want, where you need to shift the defense to be able to get into a pick and roll, you know, those kind of things, because I don't have to think about how I'm handling the ball or doing different things, my footwork into inside outs or crossovers, because you don't have to think about those things, you're that much more efficient and that you're that much more fluid doing those things.
0: You know, it's been a while since I've watched the, uh, the homework basketball. And by the way, if you're listening and you want to get the definitive uh, drilling for improving your high handles, P. Maravich, I believe you can probably get it on, you know, on digital now. It's fantastic stuff. It's called homework basketball. And uh, let me ask you this. I got into an interesting argument with a skills trainer the other day about, um, well, one was we were talking about the crossover. And the Tony Parker crossover, which is sort of high, he brings it across his body and then in front of him as he crosses it over, Uh, As opposed to the way I used to learn it when I was a little older than you would have been a, if I'm going right to left, it would have been a really quick bounce to the right, like almost inside out and then a crossover, which was a lateral move and never really was a benefit for me. Do you have a feeling, I'm just kind of curious about like the best way to do that crossover?
2: You know, I I don't necessarily um, think one is better than the other. You know, the Tony crossover kind of pick it up. Kind of similar to like a Stefan Marbury, I think is what you're talking about, or you know you know the the changing speeds changing directions is the one that really kind of uh was was better for me um because you can attack you can get your shoulders low a little bit more um mm-hmm. you know, and then the exaggeration of that one with DZ allen Iverson kind of ex- exaggerated extended out um crossover, but you know my whole thing when i when I'm coaching my son's team now who's in who's in uh fourth grade is look. Changing speeds, changing directions is uh, so unbelievably important. Whether you're doing an inside out, whether you're doing a crossover between the legs behind the back, whatever it is, you got to change speeds, you got to change directions, and then the final piece of that is you got to get your shoulders down. You got to win that war of your shoulder attacking, you know, the defender's hip or the defender's thigh, knee area.
0: Absolutely. You know, it was, when I was running my program at the high school level, as part of our warm up, often I would just do a drill where I'd blow the whistle and they have four different speeds. They need to be running up and up and back and each below the whistle. they go a little faster, a little slower, depending on what, you know, the cadence we were at. And, uh, you know, that was my attempt at the very least to try and, you know, drill into them, change of speed. I feel like that is a key that would probably allow someone who isn't like John Wall or uh, Russell Westbrook to keep the defense off balance oh without a doubt I mean I think you know I would be an example of that I think
2: the best example of all time probably with that is Steve Nash I mean he gets into his skip step um, so that he's able to change his speeds and he's able to change his direction you know and if you, you you talked about coming off the screen preparing like catch and go type stuff If you were to watch Steve Nash kind of come off a pin down or, you know, if he's coming off a dribble handoff, he would most of the time catch it in a skip step so that he can quickly, you know, explode out and change his speed.
0: Absolutely. What my big focus on these days is is the scissor, scissoring your feet, which is a lot like the skip step because then you can actually switch the other foot to the front and then you can explode in that direction in a way that it's hard for the defense to key in on. You know what direction you want to go and uh like as i'm working with younger guys now i mean i'm a big uh, were you a hop shooter when you when you were playing or were you one two
2: you know i was uh this is this is kind of where the 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 drilling and the focus of skill development came under with coach few is you know when i was at uw that was never talked about i mean it was just hey we're going to come off of, of uh screen actions and shoot it in our drill work But there was really no rhyme or reason or explanation why you do what you do and why the coaches believed in what they were telling you to do. You know, when I got to Gonzaga, Coach Few was a very, very uh, solid, everything-needs-to-be-a-quick-stop guy. Um, He's gotten away from that a little bit, you know, and I think a lot of it comes down to the the individual player, if they already are really comfortable doing a one-two or a quick stop. So when I got to Gonzaga, I, I really dialed in with the quick stop. Um, and that was great for me balance-wise. When I got to the NBA, you know, I started working on more of the 1-2. I think, you know, for me personally off the quick stop, I had more balance into it, mm-hmm. but I don't think I had the amount of uh, range or the quickness as I did if I was going 1-2, um, either right foot, inside foot, left foot, inside foot, depending on which side of the floor you're on. So, you know, I kind of dialed it in when I got to the NBA that I was proficient at doing either one. And to this day, you know, if I go play pickup. You know, I could do either one. It just kind of – it just – whatever I sense the defense and the best uh, footwork at that moment in time is quickly what I get into. Oh,
0: that's interesting. Yeah, I was a one-two coach for like 15 years when now let my kids shoot off off of the, what I thought it was a jump stop because that to me was like, you know, way too high, way too slow. But when I saw, what you know, what you're calling the quick stop, which is a two inches and it's explosive, uh, it's actually – I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you said you, you didn't feel like you had enough um, – Uh, strength, I guess, from your legs to shoot from distance at the NBA level off the hop?
2: Yeah, I think it's just because the way when you generate into a one-two, you're really kind of able to kind of slow momentum-wise up into your shot. I mean, I could easily still shoot a quick stop into a three, um, but just, you know, efficiency of movement, I always felt like a really deep three was much easier off of one-two.
0: Fair enough. I mean, listen, when when I have players who, if it gets kicked out off of, you know, um, an offensive rebound and there's nobody within, you know, 10 feet of you, yeah, please, one-two it, take your time, the whole thing, Um, you know, but I feel like a lot of times what we're looking at now off the pick and roll, they're setting these screens high, and when we scissor the feet together into a hop and a shot, I mean – For me, what I'm looking at and observing with my eyes is that it's a much quicker, much more explosive way. And, you know, Steph Curry does it beautifully, you know, that that scissoring move into getting both your feet together in the air together and then boom. But then likewise, getting them apart off the dribble to then explode. I think those are things that are, you know, it sounds like those are the things that you did a lot of as well. And And I think that the point also is that, you know, maybe Mark, you did it but it doesn't seem like that's the kind of uh, detail that people are focusing in on enough. Would you feel that way?
2: No, I completely agree. You know, and I think, um, you know, I I think, unfortunately, that's part of the the problem with AAU basketball. You know, I I ran a a youth program in the Portland area for a few years, and everybody wants to to play games. Everybody wants to go to tournaments. Everybody wants to uh, scrimmage at practice. Everybody wants to, you know, hope that they get looked at by the next elite team in the area so they can go to the bigger tournament. Or when it comes down to it, the youth age, you gotta you gotta dial in your footwork, you gotta dial in, in your ball handling, your shooting, your understanding of the game. Because if you never get that stuff down and you're overmatched athletically, it's not it's never gonna matter. Um mm-hmm. and so I, I think that you know, you look at a guy like Steph Curry and he's plenty athletic, plenty athletic. But when you throw his attention to detail with his footwork, the quality of his handle, his shooting range, the quickness getting into his shooting pocket, and how good of a shooter he is. I mean, it's it's almost silly how, how easy he makes this stuff look that's extremely difficult.
0: Let me ask you this before. We, and we I know we're running a little short on time, so I wanted to get one question about that, and then we'll go a couple of questions about the uh, coaches. But with with, uh, with kids who are 9, 10, 11 years old right now watching what Steph Curry is doing, um, I, I I got ripped on Twitter a few months ago when I said, you know, in 10 years from now we're going to have 10 Steph Curry's in the league. Would you agree with that? Absolutely.
2: I mean, you look at the the national or the natural progression of, of sports is you always kind of look at who's having success at the potential position that you're going to play. And I look at Steve Nash as being uh, kind of a catalyst for this point guard. I don't want to call it a resurgence in the league, but a point guard explosion. I mean, guys who are unbelievably good with the ball in their hands, make decisions, but they can also shoot the heck out of it. Um, you know, like Damian Lillard, like a Steph Curry. You know, Steve Nash had the freedom to go ahead and, and freelance and do different things. And, you know, he changed everything from being, you know, more of a post-up type game to, you know what, let's open this thing up. Let's, let's let our skill guys – play in space and play with a little bit more freedom, I think good things are going to happen. And then you see that, I mean, with the point guards I mentioned, but then you also have the John Walls and the Derrick Roses, Russell Westbrooks, guys who maybe aren't the shooters that Nash was, but they're still pretty stinking good with the ball in their hands and able to break down a defense and attack a pick and roll and do those type of things.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like what he's doing, while it's special, is is special. One reason is because no one had ever really done it before. But I I know that Isaiah Thomas, in, back in the day, had he had the that kind of green light, could have done all that. He passed that way. He could dribble the ball that way, and he was certainly a knockdown shooter. Even though you know the, all the kids will come back to me and say, oh, he shot very poorly from the three point line. But, you know, to me, it was a different era. He, most of his threes were probably at the end of the clock when, you know, they had no other choice. They weren't running shots for three or plays for three. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, didn't, I didn't think it's a matter of time until, you know. And one other thing we're noticing, by the way, luckily with, the, uh, with them playing in the finals, we got these beautiful HG slow-mo shots of Steph Curry, and they didn't follow the ball. They stayed on him. And what we're noticing is that I'm curious your thoughts real quick, is that there is a, a rotation on the Z-axis, if you can picture that, you know, he is rotating his body in the after he's in the air a little bit. And I have always, you know, these uh, motion people who are, you know, what do you know, they call The kinesiology kind of people are saying, that's uh, insane. You can't do that. You're creating a mo- moving target. And my response is, is that, well, listen, if he's doing something we've never really seen anybody else do before, then maybe what he is doing is what we should be doing. <laughs> you know, it should be the fundamentals. What are your thoughts? Well, I look
2: at and, you know, you mentioned the word kinesiologist. So, I mean, it's a study of movement. And, and you know, you could take it a step further and, you know, say that your your brain is the strongest computer that there is. Well, I'm sure Steph Curry has gone through thousands and thousands of hours of drill work where he's taking these kind of shots. And so his mind, being as powerful as it is, registers, you know, okay, I, this is my balance point, this is my release point, this is how hard I need to shoot it, all these different factors where, You know, in the past, somebody might have said, Hey, that's not a great shot. You didn't go straight up. You didn't go straight down. Like you mentioned, you may be twisting a little bit. But if you've done it time after time after time and it's secondhand to you, that's a great shot, especially for someone as skilled as Steph Curry.
0: I mean, we're all about alignment. So when we teach our shot, we want everyone, we don't want to have players with 10 toes to the rim. We actually have them turn. And that's what all great shooters have done the last 30, 40 years is what in our studies. Uh, But. I think that the opposite is is that maybe you don't teach to rotate in the air, but I worry that coaches who are trying to get their players not to do that are end up getting them so tense and taut in their shot that they can't smoothly release because they're desperately trying to prevent their bodies from doing a natural you know rotation of a few degrees or whatever in the air and, uh, and I, so that that's that we're kind that's what we're sort of getting down to in our shooting stuff is that it's almost like uh less coaching is better. And avoid the bad stuff that people are trying to inflict on you guys, and let the natural thing come out. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. I think you look at
2: you have to have great balance, um, Mm -hmm. regardless. I mean, if if you're slightly pointed left of the target, right of the target, depending on which hand you shoot with, that's fine as long as you're on balance and you can go up shooting it in a motion that you've done time and time again. But I think the biggest thing would be to you know have your elbow in line with. With, with your target, um and that's why a lot of times a right hand shooter going left, your feet are going to point left, and your your shoulders may even point a little bit left. But as long as your your elbow mm-hmm. is in line with your target, that's all you need.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know what, you're going to have to come on the court with us, and if you're in LA or I'm in the area, and we should go over a couple of these things. I'd love to see, um, you know, with video what we're what you're talking about and what we're talking about, because I think it'd be really cool for everyone to see. uh Do we have a minute to go over a couple of uh, the, the coaches?
2: Yeah, I've got a few more minutes.
0: All right, let's talk about Byron Scott because that's when you had your best year, and obviously he's been maligned a lot, you know, recently over his old school nature and how you know he wouldn't let Jeremy Lin run pick and rolls and all this kind of stuff. And he runs Princeton, which you know obviously is close to my heart, being a triangle coach. Uh, so is, is this all nonsense? Um, you know, I mean, I think B Scott is a really good
2: coach. I, I think he does have a lot of old school mentality philosophies. But it's worked for him for the most for the better part of his career. I mean, look, he's he's gotten the, the nets to the finals. He he had a pretty good run in New Orleans. He had a decent run. Uh, well, it's hard to say. He had a run in Cleveland. Um, you know, but <laughs> he doesn't necessarily, um, you know, the stats or the comments are coming out. He doesn't believe in the three-point shot as compared to pounding it in and mid-range. Well. You know what, I I remember direct just directly him saying, hey, do your first shot of the game should never be a three. got to get something going before you step back and take threes. He as a shooter. I was always like, oh, okay, all right, well, I'm open. <laughs> I want to shoot it. But at the same yeah. time, you know, that was the first chance I really had to play big minutes. I heeded his advice because I wanted to stay on the floor, you know. And as far as the pick and rolls with Jeremy Lin, you know, I didn't follow that too much last year. All I do know is that, you know, Byron was great for me, gave me a lot of opportunities in pick and rolls in New Orleans and you know, you're right, that Princeton offense if run correctly, you can get wide open shots all day long if you're a smart player. You know, you can manipulate the offense to make you get the open look as opposed to somebody else. Um and if you're good at reading the defense and then setting up the defense, it's a great offense. So it worked really well for me.
0: And when you talk about leveraging, you know, your 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 strengths to to get a shot off? Well, my take, and I try and convince people of this because they all say that the you know triangle offense prince and Princeton offense, they don't, those are old school. They don't generate threes, but I, I think it's all about where you come off the movement. If you're a three point shooter, you can easily come off those screens to the three point line for that shot, right?
2: Well, of course, you know. And then, but then the other thing is with those type of offense, you typically already have built in spacing. You know, if 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 you're a good shooter space it a foot and a half deeper where you're at the three-point line. If you're not a deep three-point shooting threat, you're probably not going to want to space it out that far. So, you know, I think it's one of those, those old adages. There's, you know, hundreds of different offensive schemes and philosophies that are out there, but when it comes down to it, the name of the game is offense, put the defense in a bad position, and then the offense has to take advantage of it.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like that's what's getting lost on the media. They look at the results and they don't realize that like some of these teams like the Knicks simply don't have three point shooters. The guys that are taking these long twos like that's what they're used to getting. That's what their open shot is. And that's what they're going to get. And it's re- very simple when you bring in guys who can shoot threes. Hey, look at that. Steve Kerr out of the triangle. All of a sudden he's shooting threes or, you know, uh, or John Paxson or Craig Hodges or all these guys. Um, and then even back with Glenn Rice later on with the Lakers. So, I mean, part of me just is – I get on a big rant often because uh, it's not the offense, you know. It's it's more the personnel.
2: Absolutely. I would agree. I mean, again, basketball is a really, really simple game. It's offense you try to put the ball in the basket and defense try to prevent it. Now, (laughs) each coach is going to have a philosophy of how to get the best shot to be able to put the ball in the basket. And if you don't necessarily have the best players on your team – you probably need to have a little bit better scheme and players to understand that scheme, but really at the end of the day, to me, it's skill development and it's, and, and it's understanding, um, you know, where you fit into whatever offense that your coach is running.
0: Absolutely. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I've got about mm, 30 or 40 more questions. So we'll have to have you come back on if you can and uh, <laughs> we'll do this again because I got a lot of questions for you about all sorts of stuff, but, Again, thanks for coming on. I, uh, I encourage everybody. Uh, how do we find you on Twitter?
2: Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DanDickau21, at D-A-N-D-I-C-K-A-U-2-1. Um, definitely give me a follow. I do a number of clinics here in the, the Northwest, a couple in Canada throughout the year. And hey, if I am down in LA, it'd be great to get a chance to get on the floor with you guys.
0: Uh, absolutely. That'd be great. Well, Uh, Thanks for coming on the show, and don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? You in, Dan? I'm in. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard, like early 90s heavy metal hard.
2: I'm yelling and screaming.
0: Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm
2: not even upset about anything.
1: Painting stores.